Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. It's a full house. I said last week we may have to do another renovation, and someone's like, you know, we probably could go back to two services before we did that. I'm like, yeah, that's right. So maybe, maybe if you like the 9 o'clock and you're really disappointed that we don't have that, invite some more friends, and we'll probably be able to, we'll probably be able to add another service. So I'm really excited to be with you this morning. I'm excited to be here every morning, but I'm especially excited to get back into the book of Romans. I'll be honest, when, when I first started preaching, Romans is a book that, that I love, but I kind of steered clear of because it's got some really challenging pieces of nuggets. And even, even if you read in the scriptures, the apostle Peter writes about Paul, that dude says some things that are hard to understand. It's like, well, if Peter can't get it, then I don't want to, as a young preacher, try and tackle it. But I will say that I have been very encouraged. I hope you've been encouraged uh, by our study in the book of Romans. So I'm excited to uh, jump back into that with you all this morning. And I'll be honest, I did not plan this. It's almost like there's a God in heaven who's sovereign over all things, right? I didn't, but I was getting into the study this week, and it's like, it's, it, it's, you're going to see, it comes right off of what we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, we spent three three sermons talking about what is the church. The church is a family, a family that cares. The church is a corporation, a body designed and organized by God to function well. And then last week, we talked about how the church is a cause. We're an army, soldiers on a mission. And that mission we examined last week is our vision statement for Crossroads Napoleon. Why do we exist? We exist to help the lost get found by Jesus, to help those who have been found, who know Christ, but are maybe dealing with wounds of their past or religious tradition, and they are not living as free as Jesus wants them to be. So we want to help those folks grow up and become mature so they live, in, they live in the freedom of Christ. So we exist to help the lost get found and the found live free. That is our mission. That is what God has called us to do, to take the hill and to shine bright as a, as a lighthouse on top of that hill. And I think that as we read through the last part of Romans 9, And all of Romans 10 this morning, you're going to see that what Paul has to say to us only is going to serve to bolster what we talked about last week. And so we're going to read together real quick. In a couple couple moments, we're going to start reading in Romans 9 and then all of, of Romans 10. And as we do that, I want to give you the theme that sort of jumped out to me as I was reading this. So if you're a note taker, this is the big idea for today's message. It's in your bulletin, but it's this. This is the theme we'll see as we work through the passage together. God has chosen or has given Christians, God has given Christians the responsibility to proclaim and promote his good news to the world, but responses to that message will vary. And that's not on us. And neither is that on God. Each person has their own, they are personally responsible for how they respond to God's message. And so that's the theme. We're responsible to proclaim and promote, but the response that people give to us as we preach and proclaim and promote the gospel, that's really on them. It's not on God, it's on them. And Paul uses the response of a nation the nation of Israel, he uses the people of Israel to kind of highlight what he's talking about. If you're new to church, you might not know who Israel is or who the people of Israel are. That's okay. The the people of Israel is another name for the Jewish nation. 
So it's the people that God has chosen to reveal himself very specifically to all throughout human history. He says, I'm going to set apart this people and I'm going to make sure that they know me in an explicit way beyond what you can just see out in nature. I'm going to come and reveal myself through prophets and scripture, right? And ultimately, the Jewish nation is who Jesus came through. If you chase, trace Jesus' uh, lineage throughout the histories, he, his, his uh, great, 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 great granddad was King David. And even further back than that, it was Father Abraham. And so Jesus is a Jew. Jesus was from the nation of Israel. And so Paul's going to use the nation of Israel to kind of illustrate what he's talking about. So we'll get there in a second. And before we move on to that, I know we've been out of Romans for about three weeks. And so I kind of just want to refresh your mind on where we've been. Just briefly, Wes covered Romans 9, which to be honest with you, again, I didn't plan this. It's kind of just how it got scheduled. Romans 9, 10, and 11, but 9 really is probably some of the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture. And I apologize to Wes that I was like, dude, you got both sections of Romans 9. I'm sorry. That said, he did a phenomenal job with it. I hope you were encouraged as we talked about how we understand God's sovereignty, the fact that he is in control over our world. And in chapter 9, Paul makes the point that God is in fact in complete control, in authority over everything that happens in our world. Now, when we make a statement like that, uh, there are some fairly obvious objections that arise in our hearts, right? When we talk about God being in complete control, suffering presents a very troubling question. If God's in complete control, then why does suffering exist? That's a tough question. If God is in complete control of who gets saved and who doesn't, then how can anyone be held responsible for not responding to the gospel of Jesus? Also, that's a toughie. That's a tough question. Well, here in chapter 10, we're going to see the flip side of the same coin. So Paul was talking about God's sovereignty, but in chapter 10, we see that free will is also true that we can be held personally responsible for the decisions that we make. While it's true that God is in complete control of all things, we're going to see this morning that, as people, that, that we as people are still responsible for our personal choices to believe or not to believe in God. We'll see that God is sovereign and we have free will. And those two things appear to contradict one another, don't they? How can both be true? When we have an appearance of a contradiction, we really have two options. The first one is to say, well, one, one has to be true and the other not. The other option, though, is to say, well, both must be true because God said, and we just don't have the brain power to, to figure out how those two truths intersect. I personally think it's the latter. And I think it's the latter, and, and not only that, but we can, see, we can see the appearance of contradictions, two things that look like they're not true but actually are. We can see that in other places. I've actually shared this illustration before. I don't know if you remember, but in science, I'll be honest, I don't really understand all of this, but smart people smarter than I tell me that this is true. Scientists can observe light as operating both as a particle and as a wave. And apparently those are two separate things and that shouldn't be able to happen based on physics and all that jazz. But it does. They can see that light behaves like a wave and like a particle at different times based on how they're observing it. So I think that's what's happening when we talk about the sovereignty of God and free will. 
I think there's an appearance of a contradiction, but there isn't actually a contradiction. That God is far, far wiser, far bigger than us, and somehow he has reconciled those so they're both true. We just can't wrap our minds around it. Paul goes on to explain, as we'll read here in a minute, that God is sovereign, and he anticipates that someone might object to that in regards to the people of Israel. Well, if God is sovereign and he supposedly chose the people of Israel, but they don't mostly, like, by and large, the people of Israel, they don't accept Jesus, then something's off here. Either he's not in control or he's not sovereign or he hasn't chosen the people. What gives, right? He anticipates an objection. God must not be in control. A similar objection arises in our hearts when tragedy strikes and people say, well, God is sovereign. And there, there's like a, maybe a, a, a knee-jerk reaction in our heart to say, well, surely he isn't. Otherwise, he wouldn't have let this thing happen, right? And we try and topple God off of his throne. And I'll admit, this is a very, very complex issue. I don't want to give a trite answer, but I do want to take a moment before we get into the actual section of Scripture. I want to take a moment to clarify one thing because I, I hope this will help you. I hope this will help you. When we talk about God being sovereign, that does not mean that God determines or directly causes everything that happens. Let me put it this way. When a baby dies or Nazis genocide millions, I do not think that the Bible teaches that God's sovereignty necessitates that he determined or causes those things to happen directly by his hand. We live in a fallen world. Things are not as God desires or intended them to be. There are more players in this world than just God himself. He's supreme, he's sovereign, he's an authority over all of it, but he's allowed some level of freedom for evil people, sinful people, and evil beings, Satan and his demons, to operate at some level. That said, God in his sovereignty is so big and so powerful that even as we as sinful people and evil beings strive to bring chaos into his world, he is so big that he can work over those things so that nothing can thwart his plans. Now, I realize that's kind of philosophical, so let me, let me boil it down here. Sovereignty. Sovereignty means God has full authority over every outcome. He has full authority over every outcome, and he either causes or allows all the outcomes. Determinism, that is what I don't believe the Bible teaches. Determinism means that God exhaustively causes and controls every outcome, that he is personally involved in everything that happens. Again, I don't know how all of this works, but I know the Bible tells us that God is in control over all things and that nothing will ever stop his plan or his purposes. I also know that the Bible teaches that we are responsible for our decisions, our choices, and our beliefs. And there's a tension in that. It's mysterious. I, for one, have come to rest in the mystery and have rested with the reality that God is far bigger than me and far better and far more good than I am. And that said, I've come to think of it like this. Again, this isn't in Scripture, but it's just how my logical brain rationalizes it. So please don't build your theology off about what I'm going to say, but I hope that you'll find some comfort in it. When we talk about how to reconcile God's sovereignty and our free will, this is how I think about it, okay? This is how I think about it. I think about a giant math equation. One big, giant math equation where God knows all the variables, 
It's huge. There's millions, even billions of variables. He sees all. He knows all. He doesn't just know what's going to happen. He knows every possible variable that could ever happen. And I think that as we live and we have free choices and evil beings work in this world, I think he looks at that whole equation and at the very end of it, he has an equal sign and it's God's plan, God's purpose for you personally and also the entire world. Humanity's destiny, equal sign, God's purpose, God's plan for you, for the world. And I think God can look at that giant equation And if one of us makes a decision and tweaks a variable one way or the other, he knows all, sees all, and he knows what other variables he needs to tweak to make sure that the end game never changes. Again, I don't know if that's how it works, but that's how my brain rationalizes it. So I hope, I hope that that's that's something that might help you if you're very logically minded. All right, that's enough about sovereignty and free will. Let's get back to our text. In our text, Paul anticipates an objection. He anticipates an objection to his explanation of God's sovereignty and how the Jews, God's chosen people, have not responded to, uh, in faith to Jesus. And so they're questioning, well, if God's sovereign and he's in control, then maybe he's a liar. If he says he's in control, but the Jewish people haven't decided to follow, follow him right, he, he must not be in control. And Paul answers that objection at the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. So we're going to work through that objection together this morning. Firstly, in the beginning or the end of chapter 9, he says that Jesus is a rock. He's a rock. He's a rock that we can choose either to build our lives upon as the foundation and cornerstone of how we see the world, of how we see reality, of how we choose to live. We can build upon the rock of Jesus or... He's a rock that we will be offended by and stumble over. Paul points out that religious people, like the nation of Israel, religious people who try to get right in their own eyes by doing what they say is good, who try and make a way for themselves to be reconciled to God, he said that they will ultimately be offended by the life of Jesus, by his death and resurrection, because what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection communicate to us that there's nothing we could ever do to be right in the eyes of God. All our good works will never be good enough. We cannot get to heaven by ourselves. No, Jesus had to come. And so Paul says religious people, those who strive to build a life of goodness and righteousness, they will struggle to hear that the house they've built for themselves is a house of cards, which is precisely what happened with with the people of Israel. Look at it with me. Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, will not be put to shame. Paul says what he's been saying throughout all of Romans. Salvation does not come to us by our own good works or our own effort, but it comes to us when we entrust our lives to and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And some might say, but the Jews, they're, they're really, really good people. They're, they're better than most. They're so moral. They have such a zeal to honor God. And in fact, Paul doesn't disagree with that statement. But he goes on to chop the legs out from a very common saying of our day. You've probably heard this in one way or another at some point in your life. Well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just as long as you're really sincere in your beliefs. Or more recently, the catchphrase has been, just live your truth. Hey, whatever your truth is, as long as you're living it and you're sincere in it, you just, you do you. You live your truth. To put it in the language of what we're about to read, well, all that matters is that you're just really zealous in your beliefs. Friends, this is a lie from the pit of hell. I can think of lots of people who are zealous and sincere in their beliefs without knowledge of the truth, and it's a huge problem, right? As Tim Keller puts it in his commentary on Romans, he says, zeal without understanding or knowledge is fanaticism. Even terrorism, he says. Terrorists are very, very zealous in their sincerely held beliefs, and I'm willing to bet that none of us would ever say to a suicide bomber, well, brother, you do you, right? You just live your truth. Just, man, you're so sincere in that. Of course we wouldn't say something like that, right? Keller goes on, he says, imagine a lady. This is a little less weighty than the terrorism thing. I was like, oh, that's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of not funny, right? He gives this example. He says, imagine a lady who loves her neighbor sincerely and brings, decides to bring her a bouquet of flowers, not realizing that her neighbor is deathly allergic to pollen. That is zeal without knowledge. It could even be fatal, right? Here's the point. It's not enough just to have zeal for God. The knowledge and truth that we have about God matters. Now, if the knowledge is rooted in the truth of Jesus, it will lead to zeal, which is powerful and good. But zeal without knowledge, rooted in lies or deception, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Look with me at Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness... They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul says, I love Israel. They're my brothers and sisters. I too am a Jew, and I can attest they are zealous for the Lord. They are, but they're ignorant. They don't have a knowledge of God's truth. They're still trying to earn their way to God rather than accept this free gift to us from God in the form of Jesus. And he goes on to explain the good news for us. What is this gift of grace? What is the true knowledge of God? And he says it's that salvation comes to us by grace, through faith, alone in Jesus. As we've been saying all through Romans, the gospel is Jesus comes and we get salvation by grace, through faith, alone in Jesus. And he goes on to say, no one should be surprised by this. God has been preaching and proclaiming to this, or this to us throughout all generations. 
He goes back, he says, listen, you guys love Moses. You Jews, you love Moses, you love Abraham. Let me tell you what they preached. Romans 10 verse five. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. And a Jew might say, see, we're called to live by the law, right? And Moses wouldn't agree or wouldn't disagree with that. But the point he's saying here in verse five, he's saying, if you wanna be right by God, then you need to keep all of the law. The problem is we can't, not perfectly. And if we fail in one iota of the law, we fail in the totality of it. Moses goes on in verse six. He says, sure, if you could keep all of the law, you would be perfect with God, but the righteousness based on faith says, don't say you can keep all of the law. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? Even if you could, you can't. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend to the, to the abyss to resurrect the dead? Even if you wanted to, you can't. Don't say these things. Verse 8, but what does it say? Again, Moses, what does the law teach us? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. It's a matter of faith, not of works. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. See, Paul's reminding the Jewish nation, listen, fellas, gals, you, you shouldn't be surprised by this. God has been preaching this to you. Abraham was saved by faith. It says so in Genesis, not any works. And so he's reminding them. And then Paul explains again by way of a quick summary what the truth of God is that saves. He gives us another short summary of the gospel in verse 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. For the heart of one who believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, between rich or poor, between black or white. There is no distinction, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, if you want to know and have assurance of salvation, here's the knowledge you need to come to grips with. Believe in Jesus. Come to an end of yourself. The gospel is, it has a lot of implications, a lot of points of applications we can make beyond what it simply is. And all of those things are important, but at its simplest, here's the message. You and I are sinful and in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. Put your faith in Him. Give your life to Him. Put him at the center of your life, not just number one in a priority list, at the center. So he and his word and his life and his death and his resurrection infects and affects everything you do and see and think. Build your life on the rock of Jesus and you will know joy and peace, the joy and peace of salvation. That, friends, is the truth. And Paul says, if you have come to an understanding of this truth, and you have a responsibility to proclaim it and to promote it. Look with me at verse 14. How then will they call on him they have never believed in? 
And how are they to believe in, in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Here it is in black and white, in plain English, once again, the mission for God's soldiers in his church. The mission, the playbook for athletes in his kingdom. Proclaim and promote the good news of Jesus. And real quick, let me just expand on, on what that looks like a little bit more, okay? Not everyone in here is, is a gifted evangelist, right? We all know some people that their hearts beat to go into awkward conversations and talk to unbelievers and unpack verbally the gospel so that people can understand and believe, and they do at, at a rate that some of us will probably never know. Billy Graham, was one of those guys. He had the gift of evangelism. Not all of us have that gift. That's okay. Not all of you are called to preach or to put sermons together and to preach, and that's okay. Proclamation is important, but it's not the only way we bring the gospel to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers. We can promote it as well. You say, how? In secret, in our prayer closets praying for the lost, that the Lord would open blind eyes. There are some prayer warriors here that nobody's aware about, and your ministry is as important as those gifted in evangelism. There are other men and women here who have been gifted in finance, right? And they're titans of industry, and they have chosen to promote the gospel the way they organize their finances and run their businesses, there are others who serve their local church and just crush it and knock it out of the park in hospitality. That, too, is a way to promote the gospel. You see, not every one of us is called to verbally explain the finer points of theology. That's okay. God understands that. He's gifted some to that. Not everybody is gifted to be an evangelist. We're all called to the work of evangelism, but that can look like proclamation, verbally exp explaining things, and it can also look like promoting the gospel through prayer, through um, our hobbies, through sharing what we do, how we organize our life. I find it interesting that two scriptures, when they talk about our call to verbally explain the gospel, it's in response to questions. It's not that we have to go around preaching and downloading everything we know about Jesus in one conversation, in the two explicit places where all believers are told, hey, you should, you should proclaim the truth about Jesus. We're told that it's not to download the lecture or a lecture on finer points of theology, but we're just simply told to respond with grace and truth to people's comments in passing, to people's questions, to, people, to people's criticisms, just in, in passing, just a quick word. Well, I love, I love the Lord. He's made a difference in my life. That might be all he's called you to proclaim in that moment. See, not all of us are called to be preachers, and that's okay. Folks, I'm not really sure where this shyness has come up when we start talking about talking about our faith. Are you shy about talking about your hobbies that you love? Are you shy about cheering for your sports team and talking about the Packers or whoever else, the Bears? You probably are because the Bears stink. <laughs> Looking at you, Wes, right? right? No, are you shy about sharing pictures about your kids? No, of course not. And friend, why would you ever be shy about talking about the greatest person that has ever lived in the history of humanity? 
Jesus Christ is the best friend you will ever have. Jesus Christ is the most kind and gifted and good king that will ever exist. He is the best father anyone could wish for. He is supremely good and glorious. Why would you ever be shy about telling people about him? I can understand that we don't want to be associated with those people on the street corner, right? Telling people that God loves them like this. Hey, you're going to hell, but God loves you, right? Right? I'm just not really feeling the love right now, right? God loves you. All right, okay. I get not wanting to be associated with that. Praise God, he's not called us to be that, so don't be. That's not what Jesus was like, and he's not calling us to be like that either. Paul says our feet as evangelists in God's kingdom should be beautiful. They should be beautiful. As we walk through our journey of faith, we should look good to our world. Not angry and ticked off and upset, right? Turn or burn, right? It's like putting a gun to someone's head, like submit. That's That's not how Jesus rolls, and that's not how he calls us to roll either. We should have beautiful feet, so beautiful that people take notice. And when they look at us, they're like, what's up with you? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Again, we're called to promote and proclaim the gospel. All right, let's keep rolling. This is our responsibility. It's what God calls us to. But as we do this, and this is a struggle, God wants us to know that the results may vary. The results may vary. If people don't come to a knowledge of the Lord, that's not on you. If you're taking care not to be that guy shouting the love of God in anger and condemnation, right? How we take on this responsibility matters. But if we're doing our part to promote and proclaim the gospel the way that our Savior does, if people don't respond, it's not on us. Neither is it on the Lord. Romans 10, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? You're talking about Israel. Well, did they not hear? Is that why they're not following? Oh no, they've heard. They've heard. The voice of God has gone out all over the earth to the very ends of their worlds. But I ask, did Israel not understand? So if they heard, did they not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, God says, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to you. He looks out over the nation of Israel and says, I long to gather in Israel like a hen under their wings, gathering in a little chick. I held out my hands to you all day long for ages upon ages to this disobedient and contrary people. Here's the truth, folks. God in his sovereignty has given Christians the responsibility to proclaim and promote his good news to the world. But responses will vary. And that's not on us, neither is it on the Lord. It's on them. It's on them. Israel heard the truth. God pursued them and held out his hands to them by sending folks like you and I to preach 
proclaim and promote Jesus. This word, he says, went out to the ends of their worlds, but rather than receiving the grace made available through the foundation stone of Christ, they became embittered in their religiosity and their traditions, and they became angry in their zeal for God. And they missed the truth and the grace of what was being offered. Rather than choosing to build their life on the foundation stone of Christ, they stumbled over him. They became offended by the truth. And ultimately, they as a nation rejected Jesus. And Paul says the only people that can be rightly held responsible for this is not the prophets who preached, and it's not the God who desperately held out his hands that they might come. It's the nation themselves. It was their free choice. Folks, it's true. God is sovereign, 100%. It's true that without God, no one can be saved. It's true. Faith is a gift. It's also true that God does not wish for anyone to perish. I love this verse. To the angry person shouting out in the corner, right? Turn or burn. They should read this verse. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient. He's patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish. Holding out his hands, come to me but that all should reach repentance. It's true that God is sovereign, but it's also true that the choice to love him is a choice we freely get to make or not. And if you know Jesus, you have the responsibility and privilege of proclaiming and promoting Jesus to others. But at the end of all of that, how folks respond, well, that's on them. So what do you say? Why don't we pray for them and for God's help in all of this? Let's pray. Father, this is a a weighty message. Some things in here that are hard to wrap our minds around. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are bigger than me. You are bigger than my brain and the brains of all of humanity combined. Lord, if we could figure all of you out, then we would be God and you wouldn't. And that would be a horrible thing. So I thank you for your bigness. I thank you for your grandeur. I thank you for the reality that your ways are beyond our ways. I pray, Father, that you would give us peace and the ability to rest in your mystery. I pray, Father, that you would help us do our part. It's crazy to me that you give any part to us at all, but you have in your grace. And so for those of us who know you, who have come to know you, who love you, then make us bold, Lord, in our proclamation. Free us from this idea of having to preach a sermon every single day. Help us to faithfully figure out how to promote you with the gifts that you've given us. Help us to promote you through prayer and how we organize our finances and live generously and serve our local church, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us to live in such a way that would cause this world to ask questions. Make our feet beautiful to our world. And when they ask, Lord, give us words to say that are not filled with condemnation, but are filled with your love and your grace. Help us introduce people to you. And Lord Jesus, regardless of how they respond, help us trust you. Free us from the burden of feeling like we've dropped the ball if our Sons and daughters 
if our grandmas and grandpas, our co-workers, our family members, if after we've proclaimed and promoted who you are, they still do not come to know you and know of your salvation. We pray for them, Lord. Bind the hands of the enemy. Prevent him from clouding the minds of unbelievers. Lift the veil. We want heaven to be crowded, Lord Jesus. Help us do our part and help us trust you with yours. We love you. We pray all of this in your name, for your glory. Amen.